Well, uh, good noon, everyone, from here in London, or just past noon. It's a delight to welcome you to another FS Club webinar. Uh, our guest today is Lord Chris Holmes, Baron Holmes of Richmond, uh, MBE, uh, who sits in the House of Lords. And he's here to talk to us today about a project of his, a digital uh, services bill. And the question he's posing to all of us today is, if we have financial services bills, what should be in a digital services bill? And this will be an exploration of digital UK government and industry issues. Uh, so many of the comments and questions that you make today uh, might well feature if you uh, if you play your cards right. Uh, so this is the bill that we've all been waiting for to help our industry move ahead. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of CN. And it really is my privilege to be able to introduce so many of the webinars that uh, we hold. And we can only do that thanks to the generosity and, dare I say, tolerance of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Uh, and today, of course, we are really ranging widely across technology, but as you'll see in the subject matter here, quite a bit of the economics, and clearly FinTech means that technology and finance are intimately bound together. And so this bill is important to all of the sectors uh, that our sponsors represent. Now, uh, I will get out of your way as quickly as possible so that you can hear from our expert, but a few points uh, of order. One, yes, the slides are available and they are posted already on the site and being put in the chat room. Uh, two, a recording of this will be up in about 48 working hours, so late Monday, we hope. Uh, and three, and most importantly, uh, we are going to be doing, as ever, a conversation with Chris. So please feed your comments, questions, and observations into the GoToWebinar chat room. Please do not email them to me, do not WhatsApp me or signal me. I am here with you, uh, so I won't get any of those till afterwards. But if you put them into the chat room, um, I will get them and feed them in, uh, in the time permitting. But Chris will also get a copy of all your comments, questions, observations uh, with your email attached to them. So if you've got something that you'd like to get off your chest, this is a, a definitely a way to do it. Now, that, that covers, I think, everything that I need to do. But first, we thought, uh, Chris and I thought it'd be really good to get some kind of a tenor of the audience. And I have a poll for you here. Uh, so if, if government could push only one big thing from within, which of these five would you uh, recommend? I'm now launching that poll. So would it be e-government? Would it be digital identity? Would it be open data? Would it be central bank digital currencies or would it be digital inclusion? So, Chris, the uh, the audience here, as ever, is very fast off the mark. And in under 10 seconds, over half the audience had voted. Uh, we're now up to 80 percent of the audience. I'll leave the poll open for just a few seconds longer. Virtually everyone has voted now and I'm now closing the poll and I'm going to display the results to the audience, which are 11 uh, percent for e-government. 37% for digital identity, 11% for open data, 5% for central bank digital currencies, 37% for digital inclusion. So a, a dead tie uh, with the bulk of the audience uh, for either digital identity at 37% or digital inclusion at 37%. And for me, uh, I guess the big surprise is an extraordinarily low uh, number, 5% for the central bank digital currency that we are always talking about. Well, Chris, um, from that point on, the floor is very much yours. And I believe our, the first subject we wanted to touch upon was uh, an exploration of digital UK government and industry issues. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. And a very 
happy just afternoon to everybody on the webinar it's a great pleasure to be here and i think what that poll demonstrates which nobody who's participated in the poll will yet know is how you've just managed to knock over my set of notes for the first point and i'm delighted that you have because the first point i was going to make in terms of uh, regulation and what what we may require is the big announcement on monday just past of the chancellor of the joint task force between hm treasury and the bank of england i think it is important i think it will be transformational but in many ways i have to say both in my heart and in my head i'm delighted with the two 37 percent scores that came out for digital id and digital inclusion because for me everything on that list is important but the two issues that you've rightly in my view alighted upon are the underpins the bedrock the golden threads if you will which enables so much more part of the backdrop to this discussion today was when michael and i were talking way back uh, in the darkness of winter and i was preparing for the financial services bill which just this last monday we completed in the house of lords and we were kicking around thinking well this is interesting and many of the amendments which i was putting down in that bill and have put down were specific to finance but i was also taking the opportunity of the fs bill to push some other key points which are pervasive across economy and across society but using the opportunity of the fs bill to get these issues raised and two chief amongst them were distributed digital id and indeed digital and financial inclusion because going back to brass tacks I think we have to say if financial services, if digital services, which again, pervasive, going to become so much of everything, if they're not inclusive, if they're not for everyone, can we truly say in any civil sense they're for anyone? And, and again, with the regulatory backdrop that we're now in, Brexit, COVID-19, going to the heart of it what we would need in a digital bill would be very much an appreciation we've come out of what's seen as a prescriptive approach to regulation do we go for a more principles approach we've got a future regu financial regulator review underway at the moment what does this mean in terms of not just what the regulators will do how they will do it where will the accountability be mainly at the moment a significant gap for parliamentary oversight and parliamentary scrutiny weren't we told that uh, brexit was all about the repatriation of powers to parliament well here's a key example to see uh, whether that indeed comes through i think fi finally on the regulatory bit if we look at cryptocurrencies and crypto assets as they're better called at the moment the key point there, I think, is whatever the regulation, whatever the regulators choose to do, and indeed Parliament's involvement on there, crypto assets shouldn't be subject to a higher bar than the regulation 
then the risk profile, all of those issues that are applied to every other piece of regulation at the moment, there's very much a sense that that isn't the case. Chris, you, you had a, a second poll for our audience, didn't you? Which I thought was really intriguing. Do you mind if I launch that? No, please. I think the great thing about polls is one is good, two is so, so much better. So let, let's have the second poll. Okay, well, I've opened it. And the second poll, uh, folks, is uh, very much what percentage of our, indeed anyone's, nation state potential, human, financial, technological, does the audience believe we currently hit? Less than 20%, 20%, 50%, 75%, or 100%. And I, I said to Chris uh, as he created this that it reminded me very much of those how much of your brain do you use questions? And as ever, the FS Club audience is using its brain because uh, well over three quarters have voted. I'll leave it open for just a second longer. Um, and uh, I don't know, is this depressing or encouraging as I close the poll now and display the results? So Chris, 10% uh, uh, believe it's less than 20%. 45% uh, believe it is 20%. 35% believe it's 50%. 5% at 75 and 5% at 100. So. Uh, the vast bulk are between 20% uh, and 50%. That's uh, effectively 80% uh, of the audience are either 20% or 50%. So um, a little bit depressing to me. I, I'd like to think we were doing better than that, but that's how, that's how folks feel at the moment. So we, I'm putting up here, uh, Chris, a slide about regulation and um, firm activities. Um, I think one of the interesting things here is uh, Bob McDowell has a question for you. Bob's a, a lawyer uh, based in Alderney. I would hope and expect that the Digital Services Bill Act will be widely drafted so that in a fast moving environment, changes can be made by secondary legislation in terms of statutory instruments. Any comments on that? I think that's a very wise comment and thank, thank you for the question. And I, I'm loving the location you're coming from today as well. Uh, it must be even more pleasant there today. I think that's right. The danger with any legislation is from the moment the ink dries on the vellum, it's already out of date. So I think we have to draft in an open, in a permissive way to enable the right use of statutory instruments, but also to have that clear understanding of the pace of change and of the innovation which will be required to realize the opportunities from it. So in, in short, very much agree at that would be the way to draft and to construct such a bill okay uh, just moving on to you know the area of citizen and consumer protection uh, one of the things a lot of people are talking about and i know you've got some strong views on this chris is digital identity uh, and its relationship uh, to, to to such a bill um, dan fianney uh, says digital identity well, question sorry will digital identity cover both the living and the dead and all people, things, and companies, you know, can this be digitalized within a trust framework? Great, great point. And uh, in short, I, I very much agree. I, I think it has to cover individuals, corporate entities, third sector, across the piece. And it is, as you'll all know, a hotly contested area because it's so easily in people's minds slips into ID cards, slips into the current issue around COVID passports. And rightly, we need to start with those underpinning principles around trust, around privacy, around purpose. 
I believe it has to be a distributed digital ID. People very much have to be the holders of that. I think the, the 12 principles of self-sovereign ID are an excellent basis. And to give a you know, small but hopefully helpful example, if somebody says, I need your date of birth, the question should always be, well, do you need my date of birth? What do you need? What's the purpose here? Do you need to know that I'm over 18 so I can have a beer? And you need to know I'm over 18 at the point I order that beer and drink that beer. And indeed, if I come back for a second beer, you need to know I'm over 18. You don't need to know my date of birth at all. You need to know a particular thing at a particular time for a particular purpose. So having that specificity in there, but it's it's such a key thing. And crucially, another element that I put in the, the amendment that I put down in the financial services bill, very much one of the sub clauses was around the key need for public engagement around this, because if you don't have that public engagement, something as seemingly going to the heart of our very being as ID will fail for want of that public engagement and really understanding how it will work and how it will pass the test so that it will be deli delivering benefit for the citizen. Uh, Peter, folks, has put into the chat room uh, links to Chris's comments and amendments to the financial services bill. Um, Rob Kotlarts, who I believe you know actually, uh, asks, is there a need to regulate the key actors for digital ID, such as the banks, or should the market be voluntary, or I might add, should the regulation be principally on the technology? I think if you get the thing structured right, and if there's an understanding as to how the technology operates, and if it's clear that none of that data in essence leaves your hand if you're on a handheld device, then that takes care of so much of the issues around this. There's a big piece of work being undertaken by the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport at the moment on this, looking at the attributes framework. And that's positive to a point, but again, I take us back to the self-sovereign ID principles and the need for those to be hardwired into it because as we all know on this call certainly from a UK perspective we've had what I can delicately describe as uh, false starts when it's come to digital ID in the not too distant past. Well, that's interesting because it, it would really give us rights beyond the current Data Protection Act and, and even beyond GDPR and it sounds like an important philosophical approach that you're taking. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we can talk about identity and particularly when we move on to company identity and, and we talk about moving into monetary and the identity of having perhaps an account directly with the Bank of England. What are your thoughts on how that might affect trade? I think there's some key levers that we should really deploy in terms of trade, both domestic trade and international trade as it goes. Certainly, ID is a key part of that. But I think, again, we need to really invigorate the debate around regulations and about standards that all too often standards are seen as opposing competitiveness and possibility and entrepreneurship. But the reality is, 
if we get our standard setting right, and we've got a great history of this in this country, standards become a great leading edge, competitive advantage. We only need to think about the rule of law for that and the laws of England and Wales. How is it that two commercial trading partners in Rwanda will strike a deal in Rwanda which involves commercial interests in Rwanda, but they will structure that deal under the laws, the rules, the standards, if you will, of England and Wales. It, it has a huge potential advantage. Tie that to what we could do with a utility trade platform enabled on a DLT structure, and we're in great shape. And finally on that, I think I just completed the proof of concept last autumn around uh, reducing friction in international trade, deploying distributed ledger technology and other elements of 4IR. And of all of the areas of trade that I could have chosen to prove the concept, it's completely and utterly by chance that we did it in the Australia-UK wine importation market. <laughs> uh, that's very, very good. Uh, we've got a lot more questions on identity, but I just want to move, I'll, I will come back to them. Um, but one of the areas, of course, was uh, competition. How, where will competition, permissible mutualization, state aid, which, of course, is a big thing, data aid, um, how will that fit into such a bill? It's critical. And, and again, there's a key role for regulators. There's a key role for the Treasury to play within this. And if we take it, say, at the Financial Conduct Authority level to see the role they have to play, it needs to be that their consumer protection objective, rightly structured, rightly there, that needs to sit pari passu with any other objectives which they haven't put upon them. And one for competitiveness, competition, international competitiveness, needs to sit pari passu alongside their other objectives, not least consumer protection. Not because it's then, as people then see it as diminishing consumer protection, not a bit of it, but it's truly driving the possibility that we have within the UK. Some of the other interesting elements to help, there's a lot of debate, as you'll all know, around free ports. Some of it is a little bit reheated, if you will, but there's certainly potential around that sort of conceptualization but also competition, particularly international competition, will be driven if we can truly reimagine what we mean when we talk about the border and how there doesn't need to be this very much line drawn in the Dover sand, if you will, where the border happens, not a bit of it. And really so much which is stifling competition at the moment on these sort of points is everything is just for me so disappointingly papery still and it may be that that paperiness is online but that is in no sense a digitization of the economy of society just because a papery process now happens online it's just papery on screen it doesn't have that real-time interactivity interoperability and all of those elements so absolutely critical that competition is not only a golden thread but it, it's understood that it's a positive rather than pulling against some of the other key object, objectives around protection around inclusion 
Bob McDowell certainly agrees with you. The digital services bill should be a prelude to link personal data. And always we link with government health, taxation, passports, driving licenses, et cetera. Of course, with relevant privacy and enforcement, which we'll come to in a minute, I think. Um, I've just put up the slide about networking and transmission. You know, a late night dinner party uh, amongst a bunch of computer geeks might end with a, a sort of a, a hypothetical question, which is more important, commuting power or connectivity? And I might argue connectivity, that you know, I could deal with pretty, pretty basic computers and get a lot out of the connectivity, whereas having an isolated, very powerful computer means I'm back in 1945 in ENIAC or something. Um, but we've got 5G, we've got these uh, low earth orbit satellite constellations going up, we've still got fiber optic and dark fiber and all that happening. And now the UK government's involved in OneWeb and yet uh, we're supposed to be having competition here. So I'm a little confused. How much will the bill cover kind of the underlying infrastructure of connectivity? And, and you're, you're right to, in your always delicate and charming way describe it as a, a little confused there Mike it's absolutely right what what the bill would say in this area would firstly be an understanding of all of the potential network enablers and underpins and crucially technology neutrality in terms of how the bill's constructed because amongst friends on this call, Chatham House rules, circle of trust. I think it would be fair to say that the open reach deal, which was done for broadband across the UK, was not the greatest bit of contracting that we've ever seen at state level for many of the reasons and underlying principles that we've already discussed. But putting that to one side, I think when you look at 5G, when you look at the LEO market and the opportunities which will flow from that, there are extraordinary, extraordinary possibilities, as good as infinite, really, for what the time we have and next generations have, as good as infinite the possibilities for real-time connectivity, high-quality, high-powered connection and again the key that word you use quite rightly michael relationships not transactional connections connected in relationships in networks technology enabled but technology enabled so we can be truly truly the best humans individually in the best human societies nations and globe that we can be and it's always that combination of understanding all of this stuff it's extraordinarily powerful kit, but it is tools. It's the latest, greatest tools that we have in our well-washed hands, but it's up to us as to how we deploy them. And it's up to us to, to determine how we legislate in an enabling way, but with those underpins that we've already set out around the right understanding of consumer protection, the right understanding of competition. And crucially, what seems particularly difficult for us, for us as individuals and for states, the right understanding and analysis of risk. And certainly over the last year, that's been one of the most interesting elements that's come out, that sense of being able to understand, analyze, assess, compare risks. And we, we need, frankly, and what 
we're enabled through this technology a complete reimagination of risk. Mm. Um, the slide in front of the audience, Chris, shows um, a satellite orbiting the Earth. And uh, Sue Milton uh, takes his reimagining. She says, in a world of growing nationalism, how will reimagining borders work? Uh, and uh, obviously, we've got a, a lot of issues here. Uh, one easily picks on Huawei. Um, but we're, we're also seeing effectively kind of data wars between various blocs, the EU, the US, uh, China, and India. Um, how far would, might a bill go towards defining uh, the permissible limits of foreign incursion uh, in, in island-type rules? And how much would we be exporting sort of a vision of uh, new borders uh, in the data world? I think it's a really great point and opens up almost the totality of what we're talking about here and whatever happened with the eu withdrawal and all of that and the issues around what that would do for trade the positive truth and this is irrespective of whether we've stayed in or left is that when it comes to the service sector that drop off in trade which is well documented and well evidenced when it comes to goods and distance traveled doesn't exist this potential for real-time global connectivity is extraordinary. And it is interesting, as Sue says, because really you've got some fascinating juxtaposed contrast. We've never been more connected as societies and as a globe, and yet we've never had such high levels of feelings of isolation and issues around well-being. We've never been more connected, and yet protectionism, retreatism, nationalism is really in worrying, worrying places in a number, not just one in a number of places around the globe. But we have the opportunity through the way we act and the way we operate alongside deploying these technologies to change that. It, it is in our hands, but it's no mean feat because you're seeing some really dangerous situations around the globe and seemingly with no sense of the ability to do anything about it. And that's largely because so many of the international structures and international organizations really were constructed at a different time for a different purpose. So one should hardly be surprised that they are somewhat inadequate to grapple with the task we have. So I think as a, as a nation state, as the UK, without in any sense, becoming post-imperialist, not a bit of it, without in any sense just pursuing something which looked like a neocon agenda, not a bit of it either. But by being positive, welcoming, outward reaching, and really understanding the networks that we are legitimately part of and how we can grow other networks for the enablement of people rather than just the ludicrousness that we've seen in the past of the delivery of democracy or indeed the delivery of our innovation our goods to other nations that sense of real relational connectivity you know tremendously exciting but again none of it inevitable all of it in our hands i've um the board is now lit up i've just moved to the enforcement slide but the audience led us there believe me they're ahead of us got a few questions here i just want to get in uh no. dan feeney again as we move from open banking to open finance could there be more of a carrot and less of a stick approach with respect to banks in the UK? Uh, this needs to be more customer centric and less of a compliant 
Christmas mandate, in his opinion. Again, big, big tick to that. Open finance has got <clears throat> extraordinary opportunities, but it has no inevitabilities about it. It's got all the issues. We haven't even said the D word. We haven't even said data yet in this, but uh, we have now. It's got all of the issues around that. But the opportunity and the potential inclusion and the potential economic, social, societal, community growth that can come through open finance, absolutely extraordinary. But it has to be, it, being somewhat reductive about it, why not just take it to these questions? If the public aren't engaged with it, why should they care? If no one's bothered to get to the grips of answering the question, what's in it for me? And crucially, if it can't get over that highest of human barriers of so what, then it won't fly. But it, but it is so incredibly significant in, in what it could enable. But it, I completely agree. It, it, there's no point it being in a, a compliance sort of approach, because if you go for a compliance approach, then you'll get compliance and largely very little else and certainly no change. Uh, Tanji Morgan points out that our personal data is constantly being harvested, whether we know it or not, and maybe a well-enforced uh, financial services bill might make us uh, quite good at handling personal data in the UK. Uh, but we have on this slide, you know, international sanctions. So somebody bases themselves offshore and harvests all of our data and does with it what they will. Uh, how how far does the bill or could a bill like this go into what we would do in those circumstances? Absolutely. There's a need for a much greater understanding at a, at a national level and then international cooperation through new networks, through new real-time organizational structures. Because you're quite right, data is being I mean, harvested barely covers it as the word, does it? There's, the obvious examples are the big social media players. But again, there's no inevitability that their structure needed to be extractive. It is extractive. And for what any of the uh, leaders of those organizations say, it's deliberately extractive. It's constructed to be extractive. And it's difficult to improve on the quote of another that if you're not paying for a service, odds on you are the product, not the consumer. But the reality is, what a phenomenal opportunity there is if this was constructed right, that we are suddenly all data producers. How much potential there if we fully understand and engage and, and really get to grips with that? And part of that would be in the digital services bill. Again, it just because it is how it is now, it truly doesn't need to be there. In reality, some of the social media platforms are little more than the mod modern day open cast mining of our uh, of our generation, sadly. Uh, Bob raises an interesting question related to this data. How serious an issue is digital decay, redundancy, debris uh, likely to become? What provisions would there be to counter these challenges in a digital services bill? Again, great, great point. And it, it goes to the heart of that sense of understanding and trying to get as much of this into the tone of the bill and indeed the structure and some of the specificity in the bill that this is 
always journey as much as destination. It's got to have that permissive nature. It's got to have that fluidity. It's got to have that dynamism as much as one can have within legislation to reflect what the situation is out there and that constant sense of change and appreciating what that means for the the key issues of our time if we consider yeah, going into the the climate change issue for example well a digital services bill should certainly say a heck of a lot about that not just how operations would function at you know the current uh, theme net zero but crucially what they would be doing on the front foot about so many of these issues so i think the, the, the key to it is having that sense of dynamism within it and no sense that this is ever about destination and the great thing about it is there's, there's no new philosophy about that it's just remembering that we have the philosophical the legislative the psychological the human the economic understanding to make a success of this we just need to not forget what we already know um two, two more questions on on enforcement um one for me which is really about ethical uh, there's been a tremendous discussion about machine learning as i prefer but ai if you will mm -hmm. uh, but machine learning and the ethics behind it and not not just biases uh, but also the you know the way in which it's deployed its pervasiveness i mean it was very interesting for me uh, last month to sit on a call with gchq explaining its its approach to ethics and opening what i felt was about as genuine a discussion as they could have um, but will the bill be moving into those sorts of areas of ethical application very much so and i was fortunate enough to be one of the co-authors on the AI Select Committee report that we published in 2018. And the key thread in that, which would be laid through this bill, would be ethical AI. And I agree with you, Michael, on the AI ML point in terms of gaining greater understanding and public engagement. There needs to be much greater clarity on what we're really talking about here and how these systems operate. But the UK has a real competitive advantage in the building and the further development of an ethical AI ecosystem. Again, it ties into so many other cultural elements and, and the things that we have. And again, like the standards point I made earlier, it's not about a constrainer. It gives an edge. It gives a competitive advantage. So these things don't run counter to the economic, to the competition, to the competitive pieces, they're absolutely linked and part of driving it forward. I think what we need, what the bill would need to do to give a, a specific, we have the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, very good organisation, relatively recently stood up a couple of years ago. What we would need to see and the bill would do this is to put the CDEI on a statutory footing away from government and with some key regulatory powers to really ensure that this is happening and happening with a deal more pace across the industry. Tanji Morgan uh, makes a point uh, uh, that digital discussions tend not to address the downside risks, uh, e.g. cyber attacks. 
Uh, and as you know, we here in uh, Zien and FS Club have been pushing the idea of uh, cyber catastrophe insurance. Uh, we've seen in the pandemic that the government's born, <laughs> these contingent liabilities wind up being borne by government. How far might uh, such a bill be exploring government's obligations to keep the, the networks running uh, and to take some responsibility financially for that? The, the bill would say a great deal on cyber. I think, again, it's one of those key threads. It would have to say a lot around what we currently conceive of as CNI, critical national infrastructure, and what we should rightly add to that list of CNI, and indeed where the liabilities fall and the role that government would play alongside that. There are changes that we need to see in the uh, Computer Misuse Act on a, a very specific point in terms of how our cyber technology folks can better operate. There are more that can be done between the private sector operating cyber and indeed the NCSC, the Cheltenham folks and the people down the river at Thames House. All, all of these people uh, need to be further empowered with uh, powers that legislators could rightly put into a bill without in any sense it feeling like it's a police state or anything of that nature. It's about that sense of real-time cyber high-powered force but deployed for the benefit of the citizen and indeed for the country. No, no sense uh, a police state and it ties very much psychologically back to the discussion we had about id the same principles underpin it that the id is not deployed as a means of state control is deployed as a means of individual and entity emancipation um i've probably got time for a couple more questions I, i've got up here the government support and hindrance slide um but it might it might be helpful to throw in some feedback here uh, ian hmm. sheridan on crypto assets in his view it, the bill needs as many skeptics as uh, contributing to it as supporters. Uh, crypto assets are an unproven store of value, not a medium of exchange nor a unit of account, more volatile than the Argentinian peso. <laughs> At the retail level, uh, consumers uh, need accurate summaries of products which are essential and crypto asset sellers never mention that Bitcoin's high rewards come with equally high risks and there are other crypto assets out there. Not least, uh, Zien issued its non-fungible fish token at the beginning of the month uh, for a hundred trillion dollar turbot. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, you know, how, how will the bill settle on what is such a novel area? You know, financial services bill kind of knew what it was dealing about in stocks over a hundred or two hundred years, but this is pretty fresh country. Agree, and I think the point around skeptics and supporters is right or maybe phrased in such a way that a full consideration and analysis of all of the issues is undertaken bitcoin is almost entirely unhelpful for any of us in this it's one example it's volatile it's not a currency it is environmentally unsound but to get to grips with what potentially a crypto asset or indeed currency could do, say in a central bank context, maybe going and highly likely going wholesale 
before retail, getting into the programmability of digital assets. I think there's a lot there to be considered without in any sense being Panglossian about it, of course, but it shouldn't be subject to a higher or different or non-equivalent threshold to other financial instruments because if we look just recently with some of the high profile collapses they've had very little if anything to do with digital assets or crypto they're boringly traditional in the way that they've collapsed and that's even before we get on to talk about the level of fraud currently within all the systems and where the uh, the, the largest pockets of those frauds are uh, currently sitting if a pocket can sit it can now well, we're coming we're coming close to the end of time um, and just a, a quick question on scope if I could is it realistic uh, this is from Owen McCarthy is it realistic to hope for consideration of measures to protect social justice in such a digital services bill so what would you drop out of there? social 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 justice sorry my pronunciation there no not at all not at all yes I think I think as legislators, we, we should aim high. And again, it's another thread to run through the bill. The great thing about considering a digital services bill is it, it just brings in so many of the issues, ultimately, not about the detail in depth of technology, but as to what kind of society, what kind of economy, what kind of cities, communities, country, what kind of a world we want to do our very best to try and bring about and a well formulated publicly engaged with well understood digital services bill i think could play such a positive part and enable us to say that when it came to it post covid yeah we did our very best to build back better mm. and it's going to pose challenges to the government too this support here shows the areas uh, the government really hasn't been shining in, at least when you look internationally. I mean, I'm not saying it's a disaster, but e-government, digital identity, open data, IP, uh, digital taxation, central bank digital currencies, I'll leave alone, but digital inclusion. And I must point out, Jeremy uh, Light reminds me, I, I left off this list, voting applications and uh, consulting the nation on key national measures. Uh, in fact, one of the interesting things is our inability uh, without primary legislation to have local authorities conduct electronic voting. So. A lot, a lot for government to do. Do you think that government is going to look at this bill as a two-way street? I hope that the government would see that engaging with all and every potential voice would be an incredibly significant, incredibly positive, and incredibly rich experience for all concerned. It would enable government to truly lead in a digital age because it's not a digital future it's digital now and the government and all elements of society and all of us as individuals have a part to play and there's no reason without being panglossian or rose-tinted spectacled about it there's no reason why we shouldn't be with correct consideration rationally positive about what we can achieve uh, Chris, um, we're going to have to close now, but just before we do so, uh, and I know this can be sensitive, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Um, what's the current status of the bill? Uh, you know, drafting, uh, you know, has it got widespread support? Uh, you're, you're addressing it from the Lords. 
but a lot, a lot of our audience would just like kind of a, a business person's appreciation of where does this stand at the moment? Yeah, I think it's more more than a bill. It would there's, there's no sense of saying that this is going to be laid down and go onto the statute book. I hope it's a useful vehicle for opening up a debate around all of these issues as broad, as high level, and as right into the granular detail as possible. And if it could achieve that, and if it could influence the way government happened in this country, if it could have an impact on the relationship between citizen and state, and if it could influence, even in just a small way, every piece of legislation which we consider and every government department, that would be very much a key part of Happy Days, at least some of the mission achieved. Well, you've certainly got support here, Hugh Purser, Ian Sharon and Ian Harris, all sending you uh, thanks, uh, fascination, and hoping things move ahead. So uh, uh, it's very convincing for us. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, when I was uh, first talking with you about this, I was like, okay, and I saw it as a technical bill, and now I see it as a very all-embracing societal bill, uh, and one that is much, much needed. Uh, and I, I'm delighted that you've pointed this out. Sadly, uh, we've come to the end of time and I need to give three rounds of thanks. Uh, firstly, you can see our sponsors here. Uh, I, I would think that every single one of our sponsors has a, a, an intense interest in such a digital services bill, especially now that we appreciate the breadth of Chris's ambition here. I'd like to thank you, the audience. You've been uh, particularly uh, kind and nice. As I said, I will be sending out all of your comments and questions uh, to Chris. And I'm showing you here uh, sort of the forthcoming events. As ever, just go to the website and check them out. But we do have an exciting one on Monday on the future of work is the office building obsolete. And it's being given to us by a person who invests in buildings. So he, his neck is on the line in getting this right. But my most sincere thanks of all have to go to Chris. Chris, I'm holding up uh, from a Korean Buddhist temple, my Korean karmic clapper because uh, our technology so far doesn't let us easily uh, let you hear the audience applause. So I um, have this ersatz version, which, which I use. But I would like to say thank you so much for coming. We would really like to stay in touch with this and, and help you get the word out. So just let us know when you think that there are appropriate times and we'd love to have you back. You bet. Thank you very much for that. It means a lot to me because Seoul, South Korea was where I had my first Paralympic Games swimming race when I was actually young and had a future. So that means a lot to have that. And to you, Michael, thanks as always. And to all of the audience, thank you so much. Please do be in touch. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your ideas, and certainly would, would love to come back again in the future and uh, go into some more detail on these ideas. Thank you all very much. Great weekends all when they come. Thank you. Thank you, Chris.